Hello, and thank you for joining us again in this series where we'll be discussing the law related to emojis. Uh, If you were able to join us in our prior episodes, we started out with a conversation with a social media influencer who talked to us about the way that emojis are used in everyday conversation, the way people do business now on social media platforms, and how emojis are used uh, to communicate. And with the role that emojis are playing in everyday communication, they're also gaining prevalence in legal disputes. And today we'll be picking up in that conversation with a very special guest who I'll turn to to introduce yourself for our viewers and listeners here. So uh, I've been on the bench since January 1st of 2021. Uh, Before that, for 24 years, I was a civil trial lawyer uh, here in Columbus. Uh, I spent a couple years first on the on the East Coast practicing in Philadelphia, came to Columbus in 1998 or thereabouts and uh, practiced uh, civil primarily commercial and business litigation, but with uh, 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 a practice in um, plaintiff side catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases as well. All right. So that certainly gives you, a, I think, a lot of background in a couple of different ways where right. you can come at the issues that we're talking about in this series. But um, in your current role as a judge, obviously one of the important things you handle is overseeing trials. And a big part of that is ruling on the admissibility of evidence. Um, do you have any sort of general guidelines or philosophies that, that impact your approach to making those decisions about things coming in or, or being kept out? Sure, I, I do. It's, it's really, I think, more a process-driven philosophy rather than a, a substantive legal philosophy. Um, I've been called, and I, th- I think it's accurate to say, that I am a procedural formalist. Uh, and so what that means is that um, I uh, very much expect that when there are discovery disputes or evidentiary disputes on the eve of trial, we're going to have those issues largely vetted by the time the trial starts, ideally, uh, particularly in a civil setting. I, I don't see any reason uh, why, um, why there should be any surprises about the evidentiary outcomes of foreseeable issues at trial. So it, it, philosophically, I am a, a judge that would prefer those issues to be vetted by the final pretrial, uh, fully briefed by the parties. I will generally issue an opinion uh, on those, uh, recognizing that wh- whoever's on the losing end of that issue may want to have that issue for an appeal. And so I will make an extended record, um, both in whatever the decision and entry is where possible, uh, or on the record in the courtroom, um, you know, as, as appropriate. And sort of continuing on that, that point about handling evidence in trials, I think something that most people, most viewers will be familiar with is changes in the forms of evidence over the the last few years, really over the last few decades. Is that um, something you see coming up in trials, the switch from, you know, hard copy paper documents to digitized communications, emails, things of that nature? Yes, uh, both in terms of internal operations of the court on the one hand, uh, and then also, you know, in the you know substance of uh, substantive areas of the law on the other. So, uh, you know, when I graduated law school in 1996, there was still a lot being done on, by typewriters, you know, and uh, with photocopy machines and fax machines with the little digital spools that uh, had the, the the thermal paper on it, and uh, 
you know, the the digital revolution that we're, we've all lived through in, in the last couple of decades has changed that mostly for the better, I think, but it has certainly added levels of complexity to what used to be fairly straightforward. I mean, you know, if you were filing a motion as a lawyer uh, in 1998, you were coming down to the courthouse to do it, and you would drop off a courtesy copy of that motion, and you'd probably say hello to the court staff, and, and everyone uh, knew each other um, because everyone saw each other on a regular basis. And, and one of the things that electronic filing in particular has done is it's, it's changed that dynamic entirely, so that on my civil docket in particular these days, as a guy that spent you know almost a quarter century practicing in that area, I rarely actually see the lawyers on my cases face-to-face on the civil side of things on motions practice because they're filing it electronically, the memo contra's filed electronically, it all comes to me digitally, sometimes it gets sent to my iPad and I'm not taking it home in a briefcase, I'm looking at it, uh, you know, from the cloud, uh, you know, at at home at night. And so uh, there are upsides to that, there's a lot of positives that go with that sort of technological innovation. Um, but there's some downsides that go with it as well, and the, particularly in the sense that um, there's 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 been an estrangement to some to some extent between the bench and the bar, just because it's harder to get together in one place uh, prior to trial. And I think that is a a phenomenon that is not exclusive to the legal profession, right? right? Is is the distancing the the loss of that face time and what it's been replaced by in large part, especially I think. Um, with younger generations is the use of social media, right? Mm-hmm. That's how people interact. Instead of meeting up with your friends to go to the mall, you You're exchange, yeah, other. you text sure. each other, you exchange DMs or, uh, you know, on Instagram or Snapchat, that's the way that you're getting that sort of intermittent communication with each other. As the father of teenagers, I can assure you that, uh, that they don't get together face-to-face, or when they are face-to-face, they're both looking down at their screens, sending each other messages, uh, rather than, than interacting in, in the way that, you know, earlier generations would. And, and you're right, I mean, that has had a, um, that has had a watershed sea change uh, in in how cases get tried, both procedurally, but also in the substance of you know the types of evidence that get introduced in a trial, the way that um, the way that disputes arise is as a function of technology and gaps in technology, and the ways that those disputes subsequently get resolved as well. And and with that increase in use of of those sort of social media platforms, you know, on the one hand, you have digitized communications with emails when you have some type of commercial dispute come up it's pretty clear right. um, who that email belongs to who authored that email now with social media it's a little bit different right anyone can go open a Facebook page with someone else's name or a Twitter that doesn't even necessarily have a name attached to it um, have you seen those types of issues arise or disputes about authenticity of things from social media platforms. So we're dealing with this a lot actually right now down at the courthouse, not on the civil side of it, but really on the criminal side of it. So one in my court, one of the areas that, uh, well, I, I was duty judge just very recently and the, one of the responsibilities of the, the judge that's serving as the duty judge for a given time period is they sign all the search warrants. And the number of search warrants that are tied to emergent technologies uh, 
you know, they, they really overshadow what you think of in your head as sort of the traditional types of search warrants that get issued. So we had um, and continue to have search warrants for social media platforms. Uh, we have search warrants for uh, pings on cell phones because with, you know, t it's not simply that uh, we have access to social media all the time in our pockets. We have a, effectively a typewriter and a full-size camera and a video camera uh, and, and a phone uh, in our, and a bullhorn in our pockets every day as we go around carrying our phones with us. And the way we use them is so um, ad hoc and informal and people aren't necessarily thinking that they are establishing an evidentiary record as they move through the world digitally, you know, sending messages along, um, along the way, uh, but they are. And um, in the context of a criminal case, that's certainly, it, it, you know, a, a great many uh, cases these days involve things like uh, social media checks to see whether um, the uh, perpetrator and victim, putatively of, of, a, of a crime, uh, were in contact, whether they knew each other in one way or another. Did they, were they corresponding on Facebook? Did they know each other? Was it a, was it a Craigslist transaction that was, uh, that was at the beginning of this process or, or, or what? And then, and then also you will see um, lots of potential evidence, not all of it admissible, but lots of potential evidence about the circumstances uh, surrounding, um, you know, a, de a defendant's, uh, you know, mental state uh, on social media. And that's, that's also, that applies in the civil law as well. You know, if you think about, for example, um, a car accident case and the plaintiff in the car accident case is uh, claiming a series of types of injuries over time and, and, and describing the effect that that has had on their life. Um, a, a lot of the supporting evidence for that and frankly also a lot of the evidence that would be used in a cross-examination of that to poke holes in it uh, is going to be found on a social media page. You know, it's one thing to say that you're suffering, it's another thing entirely um, to you know, have page after page on your Facebook page showing that. Uh, or conversely, showing you having a wonderful time at King's Island and standing in the hot sun and uh, waiting your, your turn on the roller coaster or, or what have you. Um, so uh, for better and for worse on both sides of the case caption, you really are seeing social media in particular and the ubiquity of the technology that supports social media. So cameras in pockets. You know, 30 years ago, people didn't carry cameras with them wherever they went. Now they do. And I can tell you that since getting an iPhone, uh, I don't know, 12 years ago or whatever it was, uh, I have taken exponentially more photographs uh, that are still stored in the cloud um, uh, through that technological platform than I did over the entirety of the rest of my life with, with film cameras. Uh, and, and I don't think I'm unusual in that regard. And I know that, that the evidentiary uses of that are varied and complicated and still evolving. Absolutely. And Photographs are obviously a, a huge component of communication online. I, you know, recall sort of the early days of the internet where everything was text-based, right? right. It, if there was a photograph on a web page, it you meant you were going to wait for that page to load. You uh, <laughs> primarily things happened over text, 
And now we're sort of seeing a shift where in addition to the text communication, in addition to the photographs, people are using a lot of emojis to communicate. Um, is that something that you see coming up in cases where sort of shorthand or emojis are part of the communications that are at issue in cases? Very much so. And maybe because I've been in office, my time in office is really limited to the, the time that, that also co-equals the pandemic. Um, I have seen it less in civil cases because especially during the initial phases of the pandemic, civil cases uh, were, were held in abeyance while the, the, the criminal cases uh, that had constitutional expectations of a speedy trial worked their way through. So be, because of the pandemic, uh, we were handling a, a constricted volume of cases. We were primarily handling criminal cases. And as a result, we did see emoji issues. We still see emoji issues arising specifically in the context of, of the criminal cases that have, have come to fruition. My guess is that we're not that long down the road before we start seeing the same problems and issues on, on the civil side. But they certainly manifested, in my experience, first um, uh, through criminal law. And, and one of the ways that they've come up, again, it's... it's, it's uh, it's just really a testament to how people use social media all the time and in a ubiquitous way. What, what, what I started seeing were cases where people were on bond or on probation. So they're not, it's not part of their trial and the adjudication of the offense in which they were indicted. Uh, but, but either before or after that, and, and the terms and conditions of bond would require them to uh, not commit a new offense and to uh, you know stay away from firearms and the like and um, it is not as unusual as you might think to see folks um, posturing on social media um, for themselves and for you know other people in their peer group um, sometimes with a handgun in their in their waistband and uh, in some instances drugs you know present on their person or in the background and and there is a whole there, there's a whole um, array of those types of cases that we have and the interesting piece about that is they're posting it on social media and then they're using emoji stickers to blot out or censor those parts of the picture that um, that might get them in trouble and so it, there's a sort of a a coy wink and a nod thing that that's going on and that raises all sorts of really interesting questions because part of the image is obscured on the one hand. Uh, on, on the other hand, the mere fact that, it, that it's being obscured at all in an intentional way also says something about uh, mens rea, scienter, you know, intentionality. And so it's really a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's blocking some aspects of what's being presented, but on the other hand, uh, if it doesn't completely obscure what it is, it, it also shows the extent to which um, you know, someone is, is, is demonstrating some intent that they're not supposed to uh, be, be doing exactly what it is that they're doing. And one of the um, topics that's come up in our other conversations on the issue of emojis is sort of the, the ambiguity that lends itself to the use of really pictographs to communicate. Right. Um, in, is there any, you know, advice or experience you've had in 
dealing with resolving those ambiguities. What does this particular emoji mean, you know, in this context? How do those questions come up? How do they get resolved? Well, so I have not had it come up yet, although I expect it will in a civil case. I, it's easy to imagine how it could come up in a civil case. So, so without all the rigors of a contract, for example, um, it's not hard to imagine someone sending an email that says, if you do this for me, then I will do that for you uh, in one sort or another, some sort of a contract. And if the person responds with a thumbs up emoji, is, th is that a binding contract? Is it? Uh, you know, that, that's really going to depend on the facts and circumstances and even putting aside the questions of authenticity. You know, um, you know you're right that there are uh, lots of ways that people uh, have found themselves victims of, of uh, phishing and, and spoofing uh, online. And so you may not be contracting with, it turns out those Nigerian princes that have all that money that they want to give you, it may, may or may not actually be as represented. And um, you know, th there are a series of uh, questions and concerns that the lawyers should be raising to the court about number one, authenticity, number two, about admissibility, and then number three, about content. And that third one really is more the province of a jury than, than a judge to, to make a final factual determination about whether that reflects a, an assent, for example, to a contract or not. Uh, but those, those gatekeeping functions of the court remain as they always have been, which is to say, is this authentic uh, and is it admissible? Absolutely. And there are so many different ways in which that ambiguity can arise. There are, you know, um, one of the other examples we've talked about is in the iOS emoji catalog, there used to be a handgun mm. um, that was removed at, at some point a few years ago and it was re replaced by a squirt gun. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone knows that sure. that squirt gun is still the handgun emoji and how that can be used to potentially convey a threat. Um, in a way that could lead to a criminal sanction or cause a problem. You've also got um, the way we've referred to it is, right, uh, produce, fruits and vegetables have certain connotations in uh, when they're used as emojis in communication that could be a form of harassment to someone, right? Um, it's not as straightforward as it's, it's just a picture of fruit, right? Um, but there is, because of that ambiguity, right, it is can be difficult to pin down those meanings. Um, and I think it is a challenge for the legal community to figure out ways to explain, look, this does have an established meaning. Um, this is what this statement was to address some of those evidentiary questions. But right. what is you know the reliable source to go to to say this is the definition of this picture of whatever it may be. And, and again, and sometimes it's going to be a question of subjective intent, and other times it's going to be a question of what a reasonable person would infer, and it really is going to depend on the type of case and what the standard is. Uh, so you're right. I mean, those issues are all very, very much in play. And, you know, turning to kind of final thoughts here, is there any advice that you have for um, practitioners in general as to how to approach those things? What... Um, when questions arise about authenticity or or content, which I understand you're you're absolutely right, is generally going to be more of a factual determination, right? If there is a dispute over what does this or that emoji mean, um, but it can also play into the evidentiary issues, whether or not uh, a given hearsay exception applies may de depend on what the 
intended content was um, in approaching the bench to address and explain those things? Are there any um, things that you would recommend or considerations that you think that the the bar should be aware of? A absolutely. So to the extent that uh, <laughs> is to embrace the notion of procedural formalism, uh, as I do, uh, you would want to separate the questions in your mind between, on the one hand, authenticity, which is a fairly low threshold under Ohio law, uh, and then admissibility, which is a substantially higher threshold, and, and then credibility, which is ultimately um, more the province of the jury, assuming that you don't have 403B sorts of issues. Um, as it relates to authenticity, uh, it has not yet been my experience that authenticity has been much of a dispute. In other words, most of the time, um, you're able to digitally, forensically determine what the source of that message was. Was it on the, on the putative sender's cell phone or on their laptop or not? And if it's not, uh, then, then that's going to lead you down one path. And if it is, then it's going to lead you down another path. Um, most of the time, I expect that the lawyers in my court, uh, if they don't have a good faith basis for disputing authenticity, they're going to stipulate to the authenticity uh, m most of the time. You know, it calls to mind uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter has a, a, had a wonderful quote that I, I really embrace and I encourage the bar to as well, that litigation is the pursuit of practical ends, not a game of chess. And, uh, and he's right about that. Uh, he was right about that. And so if authenticity isn't seriously in dispute, don't dispute it. Uh, focus your fire on those issues that that you uh, you know realistically are going to be able to ground your case on one way or the other. So I, most of the time, I expect to see a stipulation of authenticity. Or if there isn't a stipulation of authenticity, I would certainly expect to have that issue briefed well in advance. And on an issue like that, uh, I would hold an evidentiary hearing and make an evident evidentiary determination that then is supported by a, a written decision and entry. And I've done a few of those, and, and my guess is you would expect, uh, you could anticipate getting a 10-page you know, opinion out of me on, on an issue like that, because I really do want the parties to know in advance what what the trial is going to look like from a from the perspective of the contours of the evidence that that is that is a jump ball and what isn't and most of the time uh rather than forcing someone unnecessarily to bring in a custodian of records to determine the authenticity or to submit evidence on the authenticity i would expect the parties to stipulate and if they're not going to stipulate we're going to have talked about that in advance and i will have scheduled an evidentiary uh hearing solely on the question of authenticity. And I'll, I'll, I would do that far enough in advance if given the opportunity to give people you know, a, a reliable outcome in a written decision and entry that they can appeal later on down the road if they're unhappy about. Um, so that's the authenticity piece of it. And, and that's not really uh, thus far been where the action is. The real action is on the admissibility. Uh, you know, is it hearsay? Uh, is it um, what, uh, is it, is it probative at all? You know, if somebody sends you, um, you know, uh, uh, an ambiguous emoji, um, you know, how is that even relevant to the issues in the case? Oftentimes that's going to be, you know, an, an open question. And so, you know, th those kinds of issues, 
you know, it would not shock me if five or, 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 or uh, five years or 10 years down the road, there are established standards, uh, you know, set out in the case law on things like uh, interpreting emojis. There may well be emoji experts uh, later on down the road that speak to those issues as well. But for right now, um, from a procedural standpoint, I want those issues in front of me well in advance of the trial so that we can so that we can have a, a clear understanding of how the trial is going to go. And I, um, you know, I, I am one of those judges that will, I'm not terribly afraid of getting reversed on appeal. I am perfectly happy to write out all of my thoughts on why a, a piece of evidence is being admitted or rejected uh, so that later on down the road, someone can have you know, their right to a resort of a higher court to determine whether I was right in the first place. I think that's a fundamental part of the fairness built into the system, and I embrace that fully. Uh, and then, the, then there's the last piece of it, which is if it has gotten over the authenticity hurdle and it's gotten over the much higher admissibility hurdle, then the question is what meaning do you ascribe to it? And um, again, that is mostly a function for the finder of fact, except to the extent that it goes to a relevancy challenge, which which is a core gatekeeping function of the court. So, you know, you, the, the court has some role to play in the meaning, the ascribing a meaning to this, because if, if the meaning is different than, than uh, you know, than, than a meaning that would be relevant to the case, it's not coming in. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, once there has been some reasonable expectation that it, it, that, that it could mean those things that would be relevant, you know, if true and believed, if found to be credible, it would be relevant for the issues in the dispute, then at that point, it's really for the jury to decide. All right. Well, Your Honor, I thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. This is certainly going to be very helpful to our viewers. I think that um, these types of emerging issues are a thing to stay abreast of. Um, you, I would hate to be in the position where the first time I thought about figuring out what an, <laughs> an emoji meant would be when I have it in a case, right? It is um, good to make yourself aware of these issues, how they can play out in advance, right? We're only going to see more and more of it over time as, as, as uh, emojis have become a more regular fixture and generationally, certainly uh, my kids use emojis uh, with, with greater regularity than I do or, and I suspect that you do. And, uh, you know, as, as those younger generations uh, use that as an ordinary port, uh, part of discourse, it's just going to be a regular part of the law that reflects that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us. We hope you um, continue to, to tune in and uh, continue to follow along with the rest of our discussion as we continue to explore the issues related to emojis and how they impact the law.